So Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Remember we talked about that last week? What was the question I asked at the beginning of the message last week? Does God want you happy? And what was my answer when I was a young Christian? Heck no, he wants me holy. And so I told you a whole story last week where God is better than I thought he was. To where his vision of me surrendered to him, me holy involves him actually meeting my deep yearnings and my desires in ways that are better and different than how I would have gone about meeting them. So yesterday, Jay and I took a long walk in the woods. Was it very long? And Jay said, you need to preach about Matthew 6.33. Linda knows it. Okay, then you're, don't talk now. Who knows what that verse says besides Linda? Fish knows. Anyone else? Matthew 6.33? Anybody go to Awana when they were a kid? Or Sherry's Bible, Bible memory Sunday school? Linda, what version do you have memorized of Matthew 6.33? Amplified? How do you memorize the Amplified. Why don't you read me the passion real quick? Okay. So above all, constantly seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. Then all these less important things will be given to you abundantly. Did you hear it? Fish, what's the version you have memorized? King James, James, which says? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and... His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. And I said, Jay, why why do you want me to preach about Matthew 6.33? You want to learn how to seek Jesus. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, and it's in the context of Matthew 6. And so here, let me just repeat some of the stuff that I said to Jay yesterday. I said, have you noticed the teachings of Jesus are deeply practical to the issues regular people face in normal life? His teachings are about what? Anger? Forgiving people who hurt us? Uh, don't, not judging people? Not being anxious about money. And then when it talks about clothes, it's really talking about status. It's not just saying, I don't want to be naked. It's saying, I don't want to be looked down on for not being important, cool, respectable enough. Social status. You ever walk into a room and you don't feel like you're dressed up enough to measure? 
You ever go to the mall and you're like, holy smokes, I'm out of style now. The styles keep changing. Whatever's cool in your generation will be cool in the next generation, but not before it's very uncool for a long time. But if you just don't change, those bell-bottoms you liked in the 70s, were, they were out in the 80s. They were out in the 90s. They started coming back a little bit with the low-cut stuff. Remember those low-rise jeans in the early 2000s? A woman would bend over and you'd be like, whoa, that's not appropriate. I saw a crack at church that I was like, this is church, y'all. But it was those low-cuts, those low-rise things. Now the full bell-bottoms are back again. Then we went through skinny jeans. I still haven't gotten out of it. I'm sorry. Apologize. Been wearing the same outfit since 2009, basically. Right? I've been wearing the same outfit for, since 2009. I'm stuck in my generation. But if I live long enough, this will be cool again. Probably 40 years from now. But that's, the, that's status. That's cool. Are you cool? Status. So in the context of Matthew 6, Jesus is saying, why do you worry about your life? Why do you worry about your life? What everybody naturally runs after. I remember I worked at a factory in Middlebury, Indiana, making shelves. You pull a lever. You pull a lever. You pull a lever. You pull a lever. Can I see this for th- th- then? About two hours after that? Ding, 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 ding. Switch stations. Because they figured out that if I pull a lever too many times, I'm going to get carpal tunnel. And then they'll lose money. So put him on the next machine. Push a button. Push a button. Push a button. It was mindless, tedious work. Boring. And then I'd go out in the parking lot, and the cars were amazing. Lights underneath them, spinning rims, low wheels, thumping bass sound system, you know, subwoofers in the trunk. And I thought, that's how they get you. Because just that's what humans are running after. You're able to get me to sell my soul to the company because you're tantalizing me with this meaningless stuff that doesn't fulfill me. But maybe the next one will. Maybe the next item will. Maybe the next thing will. Right? So anyway, I'm a little off point here. But Jesus says, like, instead of running after the stuff that the whole world's running after, worried about food, how will I live, clothes, how will I fit and where do I belong and know I'm a valid person who's important, right? How about you seek first my kingdom, my righteousness, and you let the Father take care of you? So this is discipleship 101. And a lot of, and a lot of us think of Christianity as if I believe the right things and pray the prayer, then when I die, God will receive me into heaven, And there's truth to what I just said. But Jesus called people to follow him in daily life. And if you follow him in daily life, then of course you'll also belong to him in eternity. But we Americans are weird and somehow separated being a disciple of Jesus from being a Christian. Am I wrong? No. So... Every church, I think, exists for one reason. To help people be disciples of Jesus. And you go, 
Okay, what's a disciple? A disciple, well, actually, I should ask you, what's a disciple? Uh, Evelina says, follows Jesus all the time. Anyone else? Say it again. So there's a social, you're saying spread his word. So it's not just me following Jesus, it's also me following Jesus in a way that helps others get invited and pulled, pulled along. Anyone else? So that's the making disciples piece, Carl's saying, of our mission statement. Be disciples, make disciples. Anyone else? What's a disciple? I heard one over here. Who said that? Learning? Did you say learning from him? What, Michael's got one too? Well, then say it quietly. Person who lives like Jesus. So I would add, who is learning from Jesus how to live. Which would mean our goal is to become like the master. Right? And, and so I think the way we framed this historically is that's this whole process of being a disciple. We would, and I, maybe you disagree with this. I actually think this is a crazy way to think and not helpful, but it is how Americans think. We think getting saved is the most important thing, and following Jesus would be nice, but it's not necessary. And, and a few people in church are really holy, and they're following Jesus. The rest of us do whatever the, we want, fill in the blank there with language, right? And, and, and it's okay, because it don't take all that, because I'm in Jesus, I believe the right things, and I've prayed the prayers. Which would mean that what we're doing at church with that mindset is, I'm not even sure what. Yeah. Yes. So Linda's saying, when Penn Clark visited us, he gave a sentence, every believer, I'm sorry, let me flip it, every disciple of Jesus is a believer in Jesus. Amen. But not every believer is a disciple. But I'm trying to say this American mindset is not in your Bible, and it's nowhere in the sayings of Jesus, or even in Paul, and it's not helpful. What if, what if to be a disciple is to rearrange your life around knowing and obeying Jesus, so that obeying Jesus is no longer impossible? But it becomes possible and even habit. And and what if to seek first Jesus' kingdom and Jesus' righteousness? Another way to say that would what, what if we said, rearrange your life, rearrange your daily habits and rituals and patterns, how you wake up, what you do first thing in the morning, how you eat your food, how you deal with somebody who hurt your feelings. What if, what if the sayings of Jesus are the centerpiece of our Christian life, not just a few verses from Paul? You know how I feel about Paul, right? He's all over these walls on purpose. Where's the one, where's one of my favorite ones? 
There's a good one. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He's all over these walls on purpose because Paul's amazingly helpful. But Paul's not Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus. Okay. So you guys tell me, what is prayer? I heard communication. Evelina, what were you saying? Talking to Jesus. Well, you can't get simpler than that definition, can you? Say it again. But where do you hear that? On my phone every morning. You, like you set an alarm on there or something? Hmm? Did you set an alarm for it to say that? No, when I do my devotions and I'm going through it, then just it's time to talk with Jesus. And then I also heard Carl say, prayer is also listening to God. And you said the same thing. Is it possible? Go ahead, Gloria. Okay, so that's an upgrade. Is that what you do? That, is that what you do? I got the impression as soon as you started talking, you're, this, is, this is your normal. That sounds like the way Jesus did things, doesn't it? So we read, in, we read in, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we read in the Gospels that, let, let's just do a little theology real quick. Was Jesus fully God? Do you worship him as God? Is Jesus the Father? I heard some yeses. The answer to that is no. Jesus and the Father are not the same person, but are they both the same God? Yeah. Okay. Jesus right now, does he have all authority? Right. And does the Holy Spirit, we're repeating yesterday, does the Holy Spirit submit both to the Father and to Jesus? Yes. So let's do some Trinity talk real quick. I heard a lady pray this one time while I was at college and I said, oh boy, we don't know our theology yet. She said, Father, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. And I said, that didn't happen. Who died for my sins? Was it the Father? It was Jesus. That's as weird as saying, thank you for pouring out your son on Pentecost. That didn't happen. Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit on Pentecost whom he received from the Father. So there's like a hierarchy in God. Father's first. Right? I remember the day I was standing, uh, let's see, right about here. And I was thinking about the 1 Corinthians 11 passage. Are you guys okay if we don't use notes and we, don't, we just go with stuff? 1 Corinthians 11, there's a passage, because I was really trying to process male-female roles. Do you know what I mean? How does a wife and a husband relate to each other? Because our culture is deeply offended at the doctrine of male leadership 
in a marriage. Not everyone in our culture, but a lot of people in our culture. And I really want people to know Jesus. So when the Bible's hard to understand, I don't want to just say, you're stupid. I want to, I want to see how what it's saying is either, either I'm misunderstanding it, and it's really good news, and I'm the one with the problem, right? Or something else is going on. So, so I'm trying to come to an understanding of this, and I'm looking at 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says, the head of every wife is the husband. And the head of every husband is Christ. And the head of Christ is God. It's a hierarchy, right? It's a hierarchy. And because my wife came to me and said, Tim, is there any hierarchy in the Trinity? Because I read this article and this guy was saying that in, in church and in community, everyone should just be equal and no one should have a position of authority over anyone else because in the Trinity there's no, and especially in marriage, because in the Trinity there's no hierarchy. And I said, that's not biblical. I know he wants it to be biblical because there's an outcome he already wants to believe. He's, he's already convinced himself this has to be true. Now I'm going to use my big brain and find a way to make it true. We've all done that. Come on, our, that's our brain's job. Our brain's job is to justify what our heart has chosen, which is why it's so important to seek Jesus first and put God first. Otherwise, our mind will be fighting against the Lord. Am I right? You can't convince somebody who's unwilling to be convinced because the brain's job is to justify what the heart has chosen. So anyway, I'm standing over here and we're singing... You are be- Jacob is singing, you are beautiful in all your ways. You are beautiful in all your ways. And I'm like, yes, I know this is true. God is perfect. God is love. God is spotless. Whatever right is, whatever righteousness is, surely he's the definition. And when people have a problem with God, it's not usually because God has a problem. It's because our thinking about God has a problem. I've given up on stuff that I thought was God, and I thought I was giving up on God, and I wasn't. I was giving up on that theology, and God kept right on talking to me. So I'm over here, and I'm like, you, I know that you're beautiful, so help me understand this thing. And Jesus said, Tim, describe to me how you've experienced my headship, Jesus' headship, in your life. And instantly I start weeping. Oh, my word, your authority over me has never been like, I've never felt like a slave. I've never felt unloved. I've never felt uncared for. I've never felt bossed around. I've never felt abused. I've never felt mistreated. Never once. Oh, my word, your headship is salvation to me. Your headship is life. Your leadership over me is my, I like, I want you to be in leadership over my life. I don't trust me. I trust you. When I do it my way, apart from you, it's a mess. And I'm just crying. And I didn't even say all that because I knew all that. You don't have to say it what you know. You just know. And, I'm like, and then he says, Tim, imagine if that's how Carrie experienced you. Would your headship in your marriage be good news for her? And I'm weeping and I'm undone. And ever since that one encounter, I've had a different understanding of that passage. Right? Here's where I'm getting at. There's a hierarchy in the Trinity. 
But when Jesus humbled himself temporarily for those 33 years, he was no longer in charge of the Holy Spirit. He was no longer in that second place in terms of the how things operate. Because he stepped out of what he deserves as God and what he had a right to as God, and he became just like you and me. If he did his miracles, because this is how I grew up. I grew up being taught the miracles proved Jesus is God because only God could turn the, the water to wine. The miracles proved Jesus was God because only God could walk on water. Here's the problem with that. I've, I've laid hands for the sick and, and seen miracles. Does that make me God? Peter laid hands on the sick. Everyone Peter's shadow touched. That seems more impressive than some of the things. I don't remember a story where Jesus' shadow healed. Does that mean Peter's God? No, that's faulty logic. You know what the miracles prove in the ministry of Jesus? They are a witness. They are the Father's testimony saying, He's right with me. And then from that testimony, we can go, Oh, yes, He is the Messiah of God. And in fact, when they worship Him, He doesn't say, Don't do it. When Thomas says, My Lord and my God, Jesus doesn't say, Don't say that. Remember the angel in the book of Revelation when John falls down as if to worship? And the angel's like, what the heck? Are you trying to get us both killed? Get up. Remember that? Don't do it. I'm just an angel. Jesus doesn't reject that worship. The angel did. He is God, but he didn't do what he did in, in his life on earth by his unfair advantage of God. Stick with me. Here's why I'm saying this. If he, if he does what he does in, in his human life as God... Why would he then say to you and me, follow me? We can't. At best, he would just say, watch this. Hey, check this out. This is going to be cool. Yeah. And then we'd be like, that's impressive. But I would not be saying, teach me how. I would just be saying, do it again. Right? If he's God and not fully human, I'll be a fan. I'll be his biggest fan. But if he's fully God and fully man, now I can actually be a follower. Disciples, or I should put it this way, Christians might be fans of Jesus, but disciples are followers of Jesus who are learning from Jesus how life is supposed to work in the kingdom. You have an eternal destiny in God's great kingdom. And in that eternal destiny, there's some things Kate's supposed to be in charge of in eternity. And right now, she's getting ready for that. That's kind of a little bit like, what? We tend to think about the here and now. But this life of following Jesus, learning how to wake up in the morning as a son or a daughter, learning how to be sinned against without having sin created in me, learning how to keep my eyes single, learning how to repay wrong with right, learning how to bless and not curse, learning how not to be ruled by greed, learning how not to let my anger control me. These things, right? When I say learning how, learning how, it sounds like laws and rules. But you know what, what enables me to trust my father? 
I just already let the answer out. You know what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6? Seek first the kingdom and God will take care of all this other stuff. If you know the Father like I'm showing you, says Jesus, then following my sayings will make sense. It doesn't make sense for me not to worry if I don't have a good father who's going to provide for me. If everything depends on me, worry makes sense. If no one's going to take good care of justice and my heart, forgiving doesn't make sense. Letting go of my anger doesn't make sense. Are, are you with me? But someone who... Someone who, who knows their life is held by a good father whom they intimately know is empowered, is enabled to think differently about these practical matters of life. I watched this Buddhist talk about contentment. Orange robe. You know how Buddhists dress. They've taken like a vow of poverty. Not all Buddhists, but a Buddhist monk has taken like a vow of poverty. It's their version of like a, what we would like in the in the. In the I don't know, let's see, what do Protestants have that's kind of like? In the Catholic Church, it's the monks and the nuns. In the Protestant Church, I think it's our pastors, missionaries, and church planters. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, the people who are real serious about it, so that when you're a kid, if you get devoted to Jesus, you assume it means you're going to be a preacher. And if you're a woman, in my generation, it used to mean you're going to marry a preacher. Now, in this generation, it might mean you're going to be a preacher, I don't know. Which is all silly, right? Because, why is that silly? Because work is worship. All work is worship. All jobs are worship. And we have to answer the question, how? Surely, surely it's possible to do what Gloria Mato said earlier. To live all day in the presence of God with an inner awareness of God as a mom with little kids as a person working in a factory in Middlebury, Indiana, making the shelves that are in Walmart. And see, I also made the shelves in Old Navy. Surely it's possible. Surely it's possible as a school teacher in a hectic, crazy environment to live all day aware of God, depending on him moment by moment for help. It's actually more important that the church run the experiment to see if Jesus is right. That God's given the kingdom to the regular saints. Like, for example, when he says, blessed are the poor, does that mean I should sell everything and I have to be poor in order to be blessed? And if I have anything, then I can't be blessed? Are you hearing me? No, no. What he's saying is, you've been thinking that unless you have finances in abundance, you're not blessed. And he's saying... No, actually, you can be poor and be blessed in this kingdom. When he says, blessed are those who mourn, is he saying, oh, if you're happy, I guess you're not blessed. No, he's saying in this kingdom, even if you've lost a lot and you've gone through major disappointment and hurt, you can be blessed in this kingdom. That your blessing isn't dependent on these things that in this world system, the natural way, we would think. Who's blessed in our world? Oh, my word. You just look on social media and you can tell who people think is blessed. The guy with the Lamborghini and three models in bikinis next to him. That's who's blessed based on Instagram. I'm not making stuff up. That's the kind of nonsense 
the world values. And actually, that guy thinks he's happy. All right, back to my definition of prayer. I asked you guys what, what your definition of prayer was, and I loved your answers. I'll give you my definition, too. It's a little different. Prayer is the soul opening to God. Words are great. They're also not necessary. And what we find in prayer when our soul opens to God is his soul opens to us as well. Did you know God has a soul? That's weird. You remember some of these promises in the Old Testament? He made some covenant promises and then he says, I'm going to plant you in this land with all my heart and all my soul. What do you, t- what do you mean God has a soul? Okay, <clears throat> I view the soul as the, as the um, emotional center of a person. We might even call it our heart. Kind of. So when I talk about spirit, soul, and body, oh man, I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent here, but we're Trinitarian beings, tripartite beings as well. We have three parts to us. God has three parts to him. We have three parts to us as well. But I, I view, see, okay, my spirit is that, that part of me, that deepest part of me that, that in the beginning was alive, but in the fall died. And now that I'm born again is back, on, is back online and is supposed to be the leadership role of my life. I'm led by the spirit in union with my human spirit. My soul is a place where my emotions and my desires and my memories. I sometimes refer to it as an inner child. And it's our job to take good care of our souls. David argued with his soul. He also poured out his soul before the Lord like like water. It's difficult to have a, a, a healthy faith unless you know how to make contact with your soul without letting your soul be in charge. Some people don't know how to let their soul be honest without letting their soul take over. Right? Like, like if you're in a dysfunctional relationship with someone who is manipulative and uses their emotions to manipulate, you've, your relationship has been trained that this person, if they're not okay, then everything stops to make them okay. And things are going well if they feel good. And things are suddenly not going well and our whole family's in a crisis if they're not feeling well. Right? When an individual behaves that way, the soul, if the soul's feeling well, then they can walk in integrity. But if the soul's not okay, everything's flipped upside down. David says, my soul is like a weaned child, like a child that that has gone through the process of being dependent on mom's milk, and it still wants the milk, and it cries until it has now learned, okay, that's over. Mom's no longer going to do whatever I say when I scream. I'm going to have to be content, even though I'm not okay. I don't feel okay, but I'm not going to, I don't get to take control and misbehave. And David says, in order to take good care of his soul, he knows it's not feeling okay, but he also is not ruled by it. And he's even giving a voice to it. How are we doing so far? So my definition of prayer is prayer is the soul opening to God. 
so that the real you is making real contact. And what you find when we do that is God opens his soul, his heart to you. One of my favorite Psalms is this tiny little verse that says, you confide in those who fear you. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. Did you hear it? Confides. That's, that's, he tells his secrets to the ones who so reverence him. To fear the Lord doesn't mean to be afraid of the Lord. It means to reverence the Lord, to prioritize the Lord. He's the most important thing to me. I'm taking care of his feelings first. There's another one in Isaiah where it says, I, the Lord, Isaiah 66, I, the Lord, I dwell in a high and holy place. I mean, come on, it's God. No one can comprehend of God. No one can even mentally comprehend of what God is. We Christians, we we spend a lot of time thinking about who God is, his character, his relationship with us as a dad. Holy Spirit as a helper, Jesus as big brother, friend, Savior, Lord. Those are who God is. We don't spend much time thinking about what God is, what kind of being he is. In Isaiah 66, he says, I, the Lord, I live in a high and holy place. I'm transcendent. Where is the house you're going to build for me? Good luck. Heaven and earth can't fit me. You know, we were talking about the size of the universe and don't have time, but we're not going to go there. Andrew Smoker would be the kind of guy to talk to about anything physics related or cosmological related. He's our in-house scientifically minded engineer guy. Is that okay if I dub you with that? He says, you just did and you didn't ask for my, my permission, so I guess we're going with it. For example, if I say the earth has a molten core and it spins in a and it's spinning really, really fast, and it creates an electromagnetic shield around the whole planet that shields us from the, uh, uh, how do you say, the cosmic radiation that's always bombarding us. We're protected by our internal core creating this electromagnetic shield. Andrew's like, well, duh. There was a time in our Earth's history where, the sh- where, it, where it reversed its polarity and blah, blah, blah. Well, duh, I know that. And then he'd tell me more things I didn't know. That's, that's Andrew. I lost my point. Where was I at? But I'm not ADHD. Yes, I live in a high and holy place, but also, you can't fit me in any of these temples. I don't fit in your brain. If you can think it, it's not God. I'm bigger, I'm better, I'm more powerful, I'm smarter. You can't possibly comprehend me. You only know me because I work in history and make myself knowable. But you can't even comprehend me, much less build a house for me. But then he says this, here's also where I dwell. Anybody know the verse? Carl does. That's a summary. Carl says, I dwell with the, one who, the man who does what I say. Carolyn quoted it. I dwell in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and humble in heart and trembles at my word. These three passages I just quoted, right? Isaiah, the psalm, Isaiah Where do I dwell? The psalm, you confide in those who fear you. And my definition of prayer, opening the soul, kind of hit on this. And that is this. God doesn't treat everyone the same. 
Who does he give grace to? The humble. Who does he resist? What is grace? Who says? Somebody said something. Grace can include salvation. Carl says favor. Undeserved favor. What is it, Jay? Who you are. Who, yeah. We sometimes think of grace like it's an electrical energy or an oil that's poured on people. Okay, that's fine. But it would be better to think of grace as who God is in his friendship and kindness in action toward us. And when we put ourselves in this position of seeking God first, of rearranging our life around knowing him, what we find is him. What we find is him. When we ask and when we seek and, what we, and, and, and knock, what we find is we receive. The door is open. What we find is God tends to give us what we most want. So in prayer, he says, if you want to pray in public to be seen praying by other people, you'll receive the reward of other people thinking you're spiritual. But that's the only reward you'll get because you tend to get what you're honestly seeking, which is why I don't define prayer as just talking to God, but your soul opening to God, because those guys are talking. But their soul's not, they're not seeking him in it. God will tend to give us what we're after. And maybe a better way to put it in life, in life we tend to get what we're genuinely seeking. And so Jesus says, if when you pray, you, you, you put everything else aside and you make steps, you rearrange your life so that you can get the Father, having, have, knowing the Father, what do you do then? He says, you, you get alone and you shut the door. You remove the distraction. You remove the temptation to have the prayer be rooted in anything else other than, I want to meet with my God. I want to know you. I want to follow you. I need your help. I want your voice. I want to inhabit my life. I want to actually live while I'm alive. Now, how do we do that? Boy, that takes a lot longer time to think about. And I brought up the Buddhist monk, and we're over time, but I'm going to finish probably with this. Uh, Your time is very important, and I don't want to abuse that. So I'll be very brief. I watched this Buddhist monk talking about seeking contentment and getting rid, of possession, getting rid of possessions to do it. And I thought, okay. And then he said, now let's talk about how to wake up in the morning. And I thought, what? He said, here's how I wake up. I only own two blankets. The one is my robe. The other one, uh, I roll up and make a pillow. So first thing in the morning, I don't leave. I roll up my my bed, and I sit still and I spend a little time thinking about the fact that I'm going to die soon. That life's not guaranteed and I am not owed life. Life is a big surprise gift. And I'm a Christian, so I'm watching this guy and I've got my radar on and my little guard up. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you're not selling me anything that I'm not ready to buy. And I'm like, so far, so good. I agree with that. Life's a stewardship, not an ownership. I don't own this life. I don't own this body. I don't own this time. Everything I have is on loan from God to be returned. And then he's going to render a verdict for how I did with the short time he loaned me. I'm a gift. I'm a gift to me. Many of us need to get to that place where we can see that. 
So he sits there and thinks about death so that he engages his day not as something to be taken for granted and therefore he's easily offended that things didn't go how he wanted when the reality is if it goes at all, it's kind of a shock. If it went, oh, I wish I had a better car. You have a car. Wish I had a better wife. You're breathing. You'll make her a better wife when you get to be a better man. Anyway. <laughs> A better man would take your life and be grateful for it. That's often what I think. Swap lives with somebody else, come back in a year, and you'll envy them, and you'll want your life back, and you'll realize, oh, they, li they inhabited it differently. And so this guy talks about how to, how to get up in the morning, how to engage the day, how to get dressed, and how to not be in a hurry. Dallas Willard, one of my spiritual heroes, says, we have to ruthlessly cut hurry out of our lives. Last week or two weeks ago, Michael saw me in a hurry as my normal Sunday morning routine is. And I didn't realize it. I was like going somewhere. And he goes, uh, bro, what's happening? I don't remember your exact words, but you're like, bro, what? And I'm like, what? You're all like that, you know? And I said, I don't know. That's just normal. I got stuff to do. I'm doing it. And then Dallas Willard comes and says, if we're going to follow Jesus... We're going to have to ruthlessly cut hurry out of our lives. Ruthlessly cut the beliefs underneath hurry out of our lives. And Dallas says, you guys need a theology of sleep. And I go, what do you mean a theology of sleep? And he says, oh, it's in your Bible. You need to study your Bible and develop a theology of sleep. Because when you go to sleep, you go to sleep praying and entrusting the whole world and all those things you care about to the Lord because he doesn't sleep. And the extent to which we can do that, we'll sleep better. Like Jesus in the boat. Dallas thinks that when we learn to live from a place of rest, we, we can be moving quickly and efficiently without ever being in a hurry in here. Because when I'm in a hurry, this is where these road rage incidents come from. And where these obsessive fist fights over who butted in line came from. I'm talking too long. I don't have the answer, Jay. How do I seek God first? I think that depends on you and him. Aren't we all a little different? You see, I think we humans want the, the right way to do things. And there's probably millions of wrong ways to do things. And maybe thousands of right ways. <laughs> so find a good one but here's what I would say don't try to bite off don't try to eat the elephant scale it down I can't eat an elephant I can't make the jump from being like me to being all at once like Jesus 100% in one day but what I can do is scale it down to something I can, I can a bite sized thing I can do a dragon small enough I can fight a discipline small enough I can do it I'm going to pray. Come on, prayer team, come on, come on up. I hope this was at least a little helpful. And if I sinned, I hope I didn't. But if I sinned, please tell me and I'll apologize.
What's, what's, my, what's Tim's definition of prayer? Opening your soul to God. And what do we typically find when we do that? That he is also opening his soul to us. And what do we get when we seek? We get what we're really after. Our motive determines what we get. Okay. Uh, You guys got anything for the day? No? Prayer? You got a notebook. Well, I wanted to make sure. Gosh, you do that to me. It's too close. (laughs) So I, I had a really rough night last night. Mostly the shoulder. But when that happens, I don't know if you guys are like this, but the nighttime, if I'm not sleeping good, this starts. And it was a while before I realized that I was under condemnation. So I wanted to write the definition, being unable to let go of a past sin and our anguish over something we did, whether recently or a long time ago. And I was, I was like replaying these things because one of my biggest struggles, I'm just being really transparent, is I want to be a really godly wife and an amazing mom to my kids and raise them up to be great young men. But I can find so many things in the course of just one day <laughs> that I've done wrong. And last night I was just really holding on to all that and having a hard time letting it go. And so I don't know if there's anybody else struggling like that with past mess-ups or sin or letting go of something that you know is not serving you any longer. Then I'd like to pray for you. That's good. Thank you. That's fascinating that you were under condemnation and then you didn't realize it until... I was so tired and hurting. And it took me a while before I realized, oh my gosh. Okay, Jesus... (laughs) I think it's so normal to just shove your feelings down and be like, stupid feelings, get out of my way, I got crap to do. Yeah. You know? All this speaks freedom. It just is freedom to me. Like, she wanted to be set free from that. And my my heart today was for all the stuff that's at the cross, negativity, guilt, hate, shame, envy, anger, anxiety, depression, sick. Bring it up. Bring it up. We'll we'll pray with you. I've come up here... uh, I've had to, I'm up here to pray, but I'm, I go get prayer for, um, I eat too much. I'm overeating. I need to be healthier. Lord, help me. Uh, what else? Um, I've put things in front of my eyes. I shouldn't have. Oh Lord, I need help with that. You know, come on up for whatever. Let's, let's dump it at the foot of the cross and give it to Jesus. And that's freedom. You know, Linda, Linda's set free. Refreshing honesty. Teresa, that is such refreshing honesty. I've said that before. Just, I eat too much, too. But just, you know. And you need no, I go through cycles. You can't outrun as much as I... You, the, if I showed you the pile of food I eat, you'd say, you can't outrun that boy. I'm going to pray. God, we bless you. We honor you, Father. You're so much better than I think. You're so much better than any of us think. I pray right now for the, the way that our standard of righteousness, we've, we've, 
we have this vision of, of seeking you, like Linda was saying. We have this vision of what we want to do for you and with you. And sometimes those of us who have a tender heart towards you fall into a trap of feeling so incredibly broken and unworthy because we compare ourselves to the perfect standard. And that's not how you are. You're pulling us the next step on the journey. It's a journey. And there's no condemnation. And there's lots of encouragement and help. And when you expose the stuff to us, it's so that we can take another step closer. And so I ask God today that you would, you would blow a wind and, and blow away the condemnation. That we would not allow our mind to take the beauty of Jesus and use it to, to sort of hurt us by compa- comparison. But that we would allow your beauty to be for us and we would take the next step closer. Oh, that's the song. Based on, what is that, Psalm 25, 14 or something like that? That's beautiful. Friendship in the fear. Uh, if you want to eat food with us, stay. Let's eat food. Bless you in Jesus' name. You are officially dismissed. But that doesn't mean you don't have to come up here and get prayer.